Well, good afternoon. Welcome to A Better Story, God, Sex, and Human Flourishing. Just want to remind you that we're doing this series for two reasons. First of all, to help all of us understand a really robust biblical ethic of marriage, sexuality, and gender. And secondly, we're doing this series to help us create a safe and compassionate environment for LGBTQ people, their families, and anyone wrestling with their sexuality or gender identity. Our structure today will be the same as it's been for the last few weeks. We'll start by hearing from someone in our community who is a sexual minority, my daughter, Spencer. She's gonna tell us a little about her story growing up in the church, in this church, and some of what it's been like for her. Then I'll teach for a while, and after I teach, we'll have Q&A, and the Q&A will be divided in half. The first half of it will be with me over the lecture material, the subject I'm speaking on. The second half of it, I'll invite Spencer up and Dylan, our, our friend who spoke last week. In the second half of the Q&A, will be for the three of us. So you should have gotten three slips of paper and an index card. The index card is for me and Dylan and Spencer, that part of the Q&A. The three slips are for the lecture material. All right. With that being said, I will pray and then invite Spencer to come up. Our Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this time that we have to be here together. Thank you for Spencer. We pray that you would bless her and that we would be a blessing to her. Help all of us, Lord, to open our hearts and our minds to um, learn things and to see things. Give us the, the light of your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Can you hear me? Hello, is that better? Okay, I think it's on now. Um, my name is Spencer Spears. Oh, there we go. Um, I am 21 years old. My parents are Janelle and Aubrey. I have four siblings. I'm the eldest of five. I grew up in Harrisonburg. We moved here when I was like eight or nine, I think. I can't quite remember, I always forget. Um, I was homeschooled until I was in sixth grade. All, most of my siblings were homeschooled pretty much up until that age. So we all grew up in the house with the neighbors playing on the street and stuff like that. Um, I grew up in the church. My dad's a priest. My grandpa it, was a pastor for most of his career. A couple of my uncles are pastors or have been in pastoral positions. So I really grew up in the church around Christians a lot of the time. Um, growing up from a young age, I always felt very different. I think that up until I hit puberty, I didn't really have the correct words or sexual education or knowledge to 
put into words how I was feeling or how I felt about myself or how I was feeling socially. So I think that that caused a lot of negative internal monologue and self-isolation just because things, homosexuality wasn't really addressed in the church or in my home. If it was talked about, it kind of was more of in a way where really know how to put it um it felt a little bit more hateful just because it felt like the conversation was centered around sex and not around the person as a whole and so I never felt like I got a good understanding of what a gay person is and so kind of when I entered the public school system and I was exposed to more terminal exposed isn't the right word but as I grew up and discovered what being gay was, what being lesbian was, what being pansexual was, I had more of an education and I had better words to put to my thoughts and to my feelings. And so as I grew up, I slowly came out to a couple of my friends and they definitely like kept it quiet and kept it under wraps because I wasn't ready to come out publicly. And that helped relieve a lot of the stress and anxiety that I was feeling just because I felt like I was able to confide in someone and I kind of knew, at that point I knew that there wasn't anything wrong with me and I didn't have anything to be ashamed about and I didn't feel like I was carrying as heavy of a weight anymore. And then when I came out to my family like less than a year ago in January, that was super, super difficult, but it definitely opened up the door to have a lot of conversations. And even though my parents and I disagree on some pretty fundamental issues, I think that I would come out to them again if I had the opportunity, if that makes sense, just because I feel like it really opened the door for some growth in our relationship. And also, um, I'm just able to listen to them better and they're able to listen to me better more. And I came out publicly in June and I think after coming out to my parents, I didn't really have anything else to be afraid of, but I kind of was just like, hey, I'm gay in June. Um, and I use queer as an umbrella term. I don't really put myself into a certain box as of now, but if you wanna have a more in-depth conversation, I'd be happy to talk to you about that. But I find queer is a very good umbrella term for me and where I am in my journey right now. So, yeah. Thank you, Spencer. So this is our eighth session, and it is by far the most complicated and the most difficult of all. Jesus, gender, and the trans community. We're seeking to understand what God has to teach us regarding gender and how that applies to the emerging gender identities and the transgender experience. But we're also here to learn how to embody love to these minorities. And I've worked so hard to study as much as I can on this issue, to think as hard as I can, to pray as hard as I can. And I've read piles of books and I've talked to experts and I've talked to people within the trans community and to be honest, I know more, a lot more than I've ever known. 
and now I feel like there is so much I don't know. I feel like I um, climbed up this mountain only to discover it was the base of Mount Everest. And what's left is so far beyond me. And so, I want to be very careful tonight not to speak beyond my knowledge. So fair warning, I'm going to say a lot more than some of you wish I would say, and I'm gonna say a lot less than some of you want me to say. This is not my final word. I have so much left to think through and to learn. All right, I want to begin by telling a little story. Is that forest back there? Are we, do we know yet? Is that a thing? Okay. You'll find out <laughs> what that's about. I want to start by telling you about Leslie. Leslie was born a female. She had all the biological parts that made for a girl, but from the time she was four years old, she felt like a boy. She had emotions like a boy. She played like a boy. She even thought that her girl body would one day transform into a boy body. She didn't make a conscious choice to feel this way. The feeling just sort of came upon her at a young age and stuck with her. In Leslie's own words, when all the other little girls wanted to play tea or house, I wanted to play football. At the age of four, I proclaimed that Wonder Woman was going to be my wife and we would have superpowered children. I didn't think anything of it. Leslie also remembers loving Jesus wholeheartedly from a very young age. She said, quote, my earliest memories are of the church nursery and Sunday school. I have always known that I was a beloved child of God. I cannot remember a time when God's truth was not an integral part of my life. As the years went by, Leslie began to struggle. She found it very hard to fit in at her youth group. Quote, I started to keenly feel a distance between myself and the other girls. I could not relate to their emerging womanhood. They were spending hours putting on makeup, styling their hair, and talking about boys. None of that interested me. Now, like most kids wrestling with gender identity, Leslie wrestled alone. No one to talk to. No one to listen. Nobody seemed to care. Leslie sank into dark periods of depression, and when isolation meets depression, suicidal thoughts quickly follow. She said, I lived the charade until high school rolled around, becoming increasingly despondent and suicidal. And all through this, I continued to love Jesus and was passionately involved at church. Until, toward the end of her freshman year in high school, her world fell apart. And so, I want you to hear her in her own words tell you what happened. Maybe. That's the wrong video. Do we have another one? That's the right video. 
Now we're hoping for sound. I think, yeah, the sound would have already started. No, nothing. Okay, you can pause it there. What Leslie says is that um, she begged and begged Jesus to make her okay. And one day she felt like Jesus said to her, you're going to be okay. And she went to tell her pastor. And when she told her pastor that she had this deep gender dysphoria, he said, you have to leave the church. And he walked her to the door of the church and he told her never to come back. And so she didn't. And um, she ended up uh, going to college. She ended up in uh, dating a woman. They, were mar- they dated for two years. They were married for six years. This woman had a disease where her hand shook. And one day, while she was sitting in front of her house smoking a cigarette, the cigarette fell on her. She caught on fire. And um, Leslie had to pull the plug a few days later. She died. She didn't know what to do, so she called a local church and said, hey, you don't know me. I'm a lesbian woman. My wife just died. Will you do the funeral? And the pastor said, I would be honored to. And the church gathered around her and said, don't worry about anything. We'll take care of it all. We'll pay for the funeral. We'll handle all of your needs. And the love of the church reignited her passion for Jesus. And she has been living in a deep relationship with the church as a um, devout Christian woman committed to the historic Christian sexual ethic. And now she runs a ministry for teenagers dealing with gender identity. So Leslie, desperate to follow Jesus, was ushered out of the church for simply struggling with gender dysphoria. Throughout our time together today, we have to keep our focus on Leslie, on people, people who are marginalized and misunderstood and shamed and shunned by those who don't share their experience, people who are infinitely valuable in God's eyes, created in God's image, people whom Jesus loves and Jesus desires for us to love and to care for. Now, for some here today, I realize that this issue might be the defining issue of your life, either for you personally, because you wrestle with gender dysphoria, or you have, or you've found in the trans community a home, a place where you belong, or maybe gender isn't a big struggle in your life, but it is in someone who you love deeply. Or maybe you've just tried to wrestle your way through the scriptures, trying to understand if Christianity has anything good to say, anything relevant, anything helpful and loving. Or maybe you're here with us this afternoon or you're listening and and how the church and Christians have harmed trans people like Leslie. This is a big reason why you're not a Christian. If any of these gets close to who you are, I'm sorry. We are sorry for the ways you have suffered due to the limitations of God's people. I'm sorry that you've been made to feel like you don't belong in the church. 
I am praying that through everything I say here today, you will know that you are beloved by God. Now, if you have a copy of the Bible, please turn to the first page, Genesis chapter 1. As we begin to seek to understand what the Bible says about the categories of male and female as they relate to the questions of, about transgender and non-binary identities, we're going to start on the first pages of Scripture because the first chapters of the Bible play the key role in developing a Christian worldview. They are fundamental to a Christian worldview. It's not just a lovely start to a nice story. It is the foundation of the story. Let's start with Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he formed them. Okay, so two really important details about our humanity in this passage. Number one, we are made in God's image. And number two, we are created as male and female. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, first of all, the categories of male and female in Genesis 1 are talking about biological sex, not gender. And those words are really, really important to this whole conversation. In fact, language is essential to the transgender conversation. But trying to understand the growing number of terms in this conversation can be overwhelming. We could discuss literally hundreds of terms. I provided you all, did you all get one of these? This little handout, this is about 50 key terms. I even tried to reduce it at the top with um, six. If you can't, can't read very much at all without going to sleep, just read the top six. Genesis 1.26, like I said, this shows us that humans are made in the image of God. We are created as male and female, and that is not talking about gender. That is talking about biological sex. When we talk about biological sex, we're talking about the physical, biological, and anatomic dimensions of being male and female. These facets include chromosomes, gonads, sex hormones, internal reproductive anatomy, external genitalia, along with secondary sex characteristics, which have no reproductive function. Humans, like most species, are sexually dimorphic. And part of what this means is that humans reproduce when the gamete, sperm, of one kind of human is fused with the gamete, egg, of another kind of human and produces a new organism. The categories used to classify the respective roles humans play in reproduction are male and female. You are a male or a female based on your reproductive system. I'm talking about sexually, you're male or female. A male is biologically organized to donate genetic material. A female is biologically organized to receive genetic material and gestate the resulting offspring. And our biological sex is determined at fertilization. 
Genetically, it's the presence of a Y chromosome that distinguishes a male from a female. An X-carrying sperm produces a female, XX embryo. A Y-carrying sperm produces a male, XY embryo. But some people have an extra X chromosome, or two extra, or three extra, or they have a missing X chromosome. And this person has an intersex condition. And the fact that some people are born intersex is often used to argue that male and female aren't the only options for biological sex. Now, before, look, this is just basic ninth grade biology. If, if, um, <laughs> if you struggled with that, then um, that's your teacher's fault. <laughs> now, before we dive into this, I want to make sure that we're not thinking about intersex as a kill shot in an argument, as a faceless concept in service of an argument or an ideology or a debate. So let's stop for just a moment and remember, those among us who have an intersex condition, these are people who need to be loved, people who are dealing with prejudice, and they've probably experienced poor medical treatment as they've sought to understand how to live in this world. Now, what exactly is intersex or intersexuality? These are umbrella terms for any one of 16 conditions in which there's an atypical feature in a person's chromosome, reproductive organs, or anatomical sex, or two, or three, or... Biologist Anne Fausto Sterling is well known for saying that 1% of all human births are intersex, it's about the same percentage of people as those who have red hair. She said this a few years ago, it got picked up in USA Today, and it's often used in this discussion. A lot of people have repeated this. The problem is that Fausto Sterling's methodology is deeply flawed. She includes various conditions where there's little to no difficulty in identifying the person as male or female. In fact, the vast majority of people who are intersex, some studies indicate 99% of people who have an intersex condition are unambiguously male or female. People can go through their entire lives, in fact, without even knowing that they're intersex never questioning whether they are male or female. They just know they're male or they know they're female. Some of you in this room might be intersex and not know it. She used every single category when she made her percentage, 1.7%. Now, not every single human born, back up. Every single human born into this world bears God's image in a unique and beautiful way. And we should never highlight the rarity of some condition in a way that would other those people. It is misleading, though, to reference the broad umbrella category of intersex conditions, almost all of which, 99% of which, leave no ambiguity as to the biological sex of the person, and then to use that 1.7% to say, hey, here's a third category. There's male, there's female, and there's another group. So what about the 1% of the 1.7% of intersex persons whose biological sex is ambiguous, significantly ambiguous? Do these people 
beautiful people created in God's image, worthy of respect and value and admiration, do they invalidate the male-female binary, the idea that there are only two sexes? Do they represent a third sex? Neither male nor female? I don't think they do. I think it's more helpful to say that such people are a blend of the two biological sexes rather than a third sex. And it might sound like I'm splitting hairs here, but I think this is more than semantics. When the Bible and science talk about people as sexed creatures, they recognize two categories, male and female. And there are some intersex people who embody traits from both categories. Some things are black and white. Some things are gray. Most people are male or female. Some people are both. One time when Jesus was talking about marriage, he reminded us that God created humans as male and female. And then he went on to talk about the fact that some people are born eunuchs. We don't know exactly what he means by that, but he seems to be indicating that there are people born without traditional genitalia that match their, their gender identity. So Jesus doesn't say, because there are intersex people, therefore gender binary doesn't exist. And he also doesn't say, because God made them male and female, this means that everybody is okay and there's nobody struggling and there's nobody that's not fitting in. Jesus seems to acknowledge both the created order and the fallen reality, that there is a creational intent, and yet there is variation in that intent because we live in this world. When we are talking about these parts of our bodies and all the longing and love and the identity and the relationships connected to them, this is such a fragile and gentle and painful thing that we are talking about. We are talking about the deepest parts of how people seek to understand themselves in the world. We must say, if you are intersex, you are loved by God. He loves you. You are welcome by God and you are welcome here. And this is complicated and I'm sure you've been through so much. If you are intersex, you have a special promise in scripture. Isaiah 56, verse 4. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give you an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Our Lord is saying, if this is you, I know that you don't fit into these categories for whatever reason, but I want you to know I'm going to give you a better name than all these other people get. I am going to give you a place where you can thrive in my kingdom. You are not excluded because of the condition you're born with. Jesus offered the, offers those born as intersex compassion and love and belonging and acceptance and a place. And if you will seek to serve him and get your identity from him and respond to his love, he will give you a name better than the name of sons and daughters and a place inside the temple in the New Jerusalem. Now let's back up 
everything I've said so far about biological sex is just basic science. It can be found in any biology textbook. It's widely accepted among scientists and scholars and anyone you'd want operating on you in the ER, and it doesn't matter if they're conservative or liberal. The God-given pattern of creation is humans in the image of God, male and female. And a person is biologically either male or female based on four things. The presence or absence of a Y chromosome, internal reproductive organs, external sexual anatomy, and endocrine systems, hormones that produce secondary sex characteristics. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, God declares this is good. This is very good. The Bible's foundational passage about human nature explicitly highlights the fact that we are embodied sexual creatures, male and female, which is a necessary and beautiful part of our image-bearing status, something God deems very good. Like I said, in these passages, we are being taught about biological sex, not gender. Sex is the physical, biological, anatomic dimension of being male or female. Gender, on the other hand, is the way we give expression to that reality. And this is a really important distinction. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But first, I want to point point out four theological themes that play out throughout the rest of the course of the Bible building off of Genesis 1 and 2 that are important for us as we think about the trans community, gender, non, uh, non-binary genders, and so forth. Number one, Jesus himself looks back at Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and says it's normative. In Matthew chapter 19, he's asked a question about marriage, and he answers starting in verse 4, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He's quoting Genesis 1. He's reminding us that God's original creation of humans as male and female still holds today. It's normative. It's not just relevant for the beginning of creation or for the Old Testament. It's a guide for the moral order today. Number two, throughout Scripture, the body, the physical body, is a core aspect of who we are. We are not souls with bodies. We are embodied souls. There is an integrity and sacredness to the human body. In the Bible, there is no passage that gives us permission to say things like, the body's the shell. Honey, your spouse died. This is just their shell. That's baloney. That's not true. That's not just their shell. This is a huge deal in the Bible. In passages like Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, or 2, 21 through 23, or 1 Corinthians 6, 13 through 20, or Romans 6, 13, or Romans 12, 1, our sexed bodies are sacred, and they are an essential part of the identity that God has assigned to us at birth. The real you is the embodied you. And this, by the way, is something that's been driven home lately in the therapeutic world by Basil van der Kolk's groundbreaking book, The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma. A third theological theme in the Bible that is important for our discussion is that while the Bible doesn't often mention presenting yourself as the opposite sex, it does sometimes talk about it. And every time it talks about it, it's negative. It prohibits it. 
Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5 prohibits cross-dressing. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 prohibits crossing gender boundaries and sexual behavior. 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 6, when Paul is discussing church worship services, his whole set of instructions is predicated on the assumption that the church consists of men and women whose sex and gender distinctly reflect God's created order. Finally, Romans 1, 26 to 27, roots the prohibition of same-sex sexual activity in God's creational design of humans as sexually different persons. Now, don't run too far ahead of me. These passages do not, not any of them, speak directly or definitively to the modern questions around the trans community. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But what they do is show us that whenever scripture does deal with cross-sex self-presentation, it prohibits it. Fourth, a fourth theological theme that is important as we think through the biblical view of biological sex is this. In the Bible, sex difference is maintained after the resurrection. We see this in lots of passages, like 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So summary. In the Bible, we see that God intends for humans to identify as male and female, and your sex body is an essential part of your identity. It also appears that there are no other sex or gender identities than male or female, and our sex bodies are essential to how we reflect God's image. Now, at this point, we have to go back to this distinction. Remember, biological sex is different from gender in terms of gender is the psychological and the social and the cultural aspects of being male and female. And so when we start talking about gender, we need to be careful not to stuff our modern expectations of gender into biblical categories of male and female. The fact is most of our assumptions about masculinity and femininity come from culture and not the Bible. And so while men and women are called to live out their human identity as men and women, there is very little specificity in the Bible on exactly what that looks like. A harp playing poetry writing man can be king. And he can live out of his male identity just as much as a football player bench pressing 300 pounds. Both are called to be godly, whatever the cultural implications of their hobbies might be. The Bible acknowledges that humans are male and female, and, and, and it expects humans to live in congruence with their embodied sex identity. However, the Bible gives few specific guidelines on what that will look like. God's expectations for gender expression are quite flexible. Most modern assumptions and stereotypes are rigid. The Bible is much more concerned that we be godly than stereotypically masculine or stereotypically feminine. So on the one hand, the Bible celebrates our sex differences as male and female, makes no bones about it. And it gives us tremendous freedom in how we live within our sexed bodies. Okay. 
How can all of this help us think more deeply about the transgender experience? Well, let's start with admitting just who we're talking about. A few years ago, prevalence estimates for transgender people were one in 215 people. Between one in 215 and one in 300. Recent estimates have seen an uptick um, in this. Most transgender rates among youth appear to be much, much higher than the rates among adults. Recent studies from the CDC have indicated that 1.8% of teenagers self-identify as transgender. And another, like 1.6%, say they might be. They just don't know. A recent study from another institute has identified 12% of people between the ages of 18 and 34 identify as trans. Now, there's some pretty serious challenges to the last study, but the point is there has been an undeniable, dramatic shift in the prevalence of transgender identities in a very short period of time. At the end of the day, there are a lot of people for whom trans is the defining reality of their life, their health, their well-being, and for many of them, their sense of identity and belonging and worth in the world. 41% of transgender people at some stage in their life will try to commit suicide compared to 4% of the general population. And a lot of this comes from bullying, a lack of support, and some underlying psychological realities that complicate the whole issue. And these are people for, who G, for whom Jesus cares tremendously. And, and they are in vulnerable positions and they need God's heart and his love to be manifested toward them. Now, when we try to listen to the trans community and remember to love is to listen. Don't tell me you love me if you don't listen to me. So when we try to listen in love to the trans community today, it seems, broadly speaking, there are three general groups of trans people in our world right now. First of all, some people in the trans community suffer deeply from gender dysphoria. This persisting emotional and personal discomfort of a small minority of individuals who experience their sense of gender as different from their sex. This is a complex personal issue that calls us to have empathy and understanding. Those who struggle in this area are often confused, frightened, and humiliated. And on top of that, there is no reliable scientific data available to cast light on what's going on. That's just so incredibly painful. And I want to say, if you're here and you or someone you love has gender dysphoria, it is not sinful. It's not sinful. It's not disgusting to God. He doesn't look away from it. He looks in, he walks right into the heart of that wound with you. The second group of trans uh, people, it seems today, some of our trans brothers and sisters are trans rooted in gender dysphoria. Some of our trans brothers and sisters are not. It, not all trans people have gender dysphoria. Some of our brothers and sisters are trying to navigate confusing gender stereotypes. 
So they're reacting to the rigid stereotypes of masculinity and femininity that leave little room for any degree of gender atypicality. They just don't fit the rigid stereotypes. That seems to be a large group in in the trans population today. A third group within the trans population are are others who, it's not rooted in gender. It seems that there there is a group of people searching for identity and community to cope with life's challenges. And these challenges may be completely unrelated to gender, but these people are turning to emerging gender identities as an emotional home and a place of safety. The trans community offers profound acceptance and love and identity. And in the past, these teens might have turned to another cultural phenomenon in search of identity and belonging. But today, transgender identity has become the cultural place of belonging. We know so very little about all of this. We need to be very cautious and tentative in our approach. We need to avoid being overly confident, imprudent, and reckless in our display of understanding. Always remember, when you are interacting with a trans person, you probably really don't know if the beautiful face you're looking at suffers from gender dysphoria or is trying to find how their way of being male and female fits within the narrow stereotypes of masculinity and femininity on offer in our culture today, or if they are searching for identity and community and they're finding these things in the transgender and emerging gender identity groups. If you are in one of these groups, if you're a gender minority, I want to offer some advice, which is really scary for the cisgendered straight guy, but here goes. First of all, your body matters. The male-female distinction is a part of God's good plan. There is an integrity and sacredness to your body. At the same time, gender dysphoria is a real thing. Searching for identity and community is a real thing. These narrow stereotypes you've been given are really narrow stereotypes. We should take seriously what you're saying and what you're feeling and what you're going through. Second, stay connected to those you trust to pray for you and support you in your family and in the church. And let's pray that God will give you timely wisdom and prudence in your decision-making. Third, our culture has decided that gender is is an oppressive thing and it is your responsibility to deconstruct your gender in the world today. And this approach gives you a script that pressures you to find your gender by looking within. Be careful. Be careful 
with these cultural pressures. I think it is really important to try as hard as you can to stay with your birth sex. And where those strategies are unsuccessful, there is potential value in managing your suffering through the least invasive expressions. Fourth, as you prayerfully and thoughtfully consider the options before you, find a good counselor. Find a counselor who will not live by the informed consent model. We've taken informed consent, a model for full-on adults, and we've applied it to children. And that's not wise. Find a counselor who will do some version of a stepwise approach where they help you search step-by-step step for coping strategies and each one is weighed and given serious consideration before it's implemented and it's monitored over time and it's evaluated and moved away from if it's found unhelpful. And fifth, above all else, draw near to Jesus. He cares so deeply for you. He will not abandon you in this journey. The key question we should always ask ourselves when we're making decisions is not, is this the right or wrong decision, but who am I becoming by doing this? And then the goal of the Christian life is to get a vision of Jesus in his beauty, of get a vision of God's kingdom, and then to align our heart and our mind and our soul and our strength and our bodies towards that in love. Now, there is so much more that needs to be talked about, so much more to say, so much more to hear and to listen. And I'm sure you're going to have some really good questions for me in the Q&A. Lots of questions about hormone blockers and hormone, hormonal therapy and sex reassignment surgery, but I need to wrap things up. And I want to wrap things up by stealing from another pastor who taught on this named John Tyson, pastor of Church of the City in New York. After speaking on this subject, he ended in a really good way, and I'm just going to plagiarize him straight up. Our church has to become a welcoming counterculture of Jesus' love in this city. The church has to be a place where one identity over all identities is that we are beloved sons and daughters of the high king, and that that vertical identity covers over any horizontal identities that we draw on. So if you're here or you're listening to this and you are struggling with your gender, I want you to hear this. Jesus loves you. He cares for you. He invites you to be his disciple, to learn from him. And if you accept his invitation, you will find rest for your soul. The Bible says about Jesus, not only is he humble of heart, it says he's a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief, a bruised reed. He won't break a smoldering wick. He won't stuff out. He knows what it means to be so fragile. You're like a wick that's smoldering. He knows what it's like to be like that. He will have mercy and compassion for all of us. So I want to invite you to bring all of the things you're feeling to Jesus and wrestle with him in the beauty of his love and his grace. 
And for our church, I think it's important that we have genuine compassion. Here's a dictionary definition of compassion. Sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with a desire to alleviate it. That's the kind of church I want us to be. Sympathetic consciousness of what people are feeling, what they're going through, together with a desire to alleviate it. Or as Paul says to the Galatians, bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. What does it look like for our church to bear the burdens of the trans community? What would it mean for us to be people who heap the burdens of the transgender and intersex person on our own backs? We listen long enough to know what they are and then to walk with them through their distress to alleviate it with God's love and and Christian compassion the best we can. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful for your steadfast love. Jesus, I am so grateful for what you modeled, your great love for your disciples. Help us. There is so much pain. And as we walk into the wound of many people's lives, help us to embody your love. We ask for power and for wisdom and for help. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, we're gonna play some jazzy music, some classical music, something, and you've got about eight minutes to write questions for me on the lecture, um, on the three slips or on an index card for Spencer, Dylan, and I in our conversation together. And we'll start in about seven minutes or eight minutes. Hey, Callie. now and I thought oh boy so um, okay the question several people were asking this question um, I'm hoping I'm, I'm I'm hitting it well so whenever we talked about when we were talking about the discussion of someone being gay we're saying there's a difference between being gay and gay sex and the Bible kind of draws a line with gay sex saying this is where we're entering into sin could you give that same kind of distinction when we're talking about gender dysphoria? You're saying it's not simple. If you have gender dysphoria, if you're not feeling at home in your body, if you don't feel like you identify with your gender, not simple. But you did point out several scriptures where the Bible said, now we're, we're entering into sin. Could you give more examples of when something would enter into sin, what the line biblically would be? Okay, so... I think there's two polar camps right now in our world. I think there is a, within our secular elite power structures, there is coming out of second wave feminism, 
this idea that gender is oppressive, is oppression, and that we need to deconstruct gender. That's on one polar end. And so people working out of that framework will often say, do nothing to give gender to a child. Let the child emerge and make their own choice and various radical forms of that. On the other end is the group that doubles down into creation. There's a creational design. There's male and female. You're going to live up to your body. I think the, the group that, and this will get to, I think the, the group that's saying gender is oppression, there's some truth in that. Gender has really been oppressive. Like, this, there's been a lot of suffering around narrow gender stereotypes. But, for example, hormone blockers. Coming out of this world will be the idea to, hormone blockers are used at a certain stage right before puberty. And the idea is freeze puberty so that the person doesn't, gets to have a longer neutral period. The irony is that the people who do take hormone blockers, the percentage of them that then move forward in crossing is really high. I think it's like 90 something percent. Children with gender dysphoria who do not take hormone blockers, over 80% of them, the dysphoria resolves itself with the onset of puberty. And so it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sleight of hand to say that we're actually creating a neutral space or not because the body um, doesn't get a chance to make a vote. So you're actually removing, and there's a lot of evidence behind this. That being said, on the other hand, another kind of mistake occurs and it's the mistake of not listening. We need to listen right now to, to the mental health world who are working with people to try to resolve their distress. Uh, I've met someone who the way this particular man resolves that he's in his 60s, he felt like he didn't fit in his skin his whole life. And the only way he can manage it is occasionally he dresses in the privacy of his home in women's clothing. And it's like a pressure relief valve. He, he wishes it wasn't the case, but it's a management strategy. The problem with jumping straight from the passage that says no cross-dressing is that that passage is not dealing with what that man is doing. And if I were to double down on that right now, I think everybody in the room would think that every single aspect of that is always categorically wrong. So I do think that we need, we are in the very early stages of learning about this issue. And we need a multiplicity of gatekeepers, ethicists, theologians, psychologists, physicians, all involved in this conversation, helping us figure out the way forward. 
And so I do think that there is a place for strategic stepwise management techniques. And I don't think they always necessarily violate those scriptures. And I'm now right on the edge of my knowledge. So is that answering the question? Okay. I, I do, yeah. Thank you. This is a hard question, uh, which is why I chose it. Um, concepts of sex and the concepts of gender, how does our understanding of how those concepts apply to God affect this discussion? In other words, does, do ideas of sex and gender tell us something about who God is or what God is, and does that come back to mm-hmm. this discussion? So in Genesis 1.26, it's, it's remarkable. It takes both genders to reflect God, both. Neither gender in and of itself adequately reflects God. But the Bible also goes on to say that God is not sexed. So God could have chosen asexual beings to reflect his image, but he didn't. He chose sexed, sexually dimorphic beings to reflect his image, and he says it takes both of them to do it. And neither without the other can really do it. So what does it show us? Well, some people have argued, this is actually a big area within theology. Some people have argued that because we're sexually dimorphic and we long through our sexuality, we long to be completed in the other, that this is pointing us both to the interdependency of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and it's pointing to, like I said in my sermon this morning, my own need to be completed in God. I think that might be as far, unless you want to help clarify it with further questions. No, I think that's good. Okay. Um, These are just kind of two questions that are related uh, about gender stereotypes and how we respond to that. So one question is asking, aren't gender stereotypes today more fluid than they were in the 50s, 60s, and 70s? And related to that, um, what's the difference between cross-sex presentation and defying cultural gender norms? How do we raise children in a way that's not restraining but doesn't encourage cross-sex presentation? That's three questions, I'm sorry. I just feel like they're all kind of yeah. related though. So like, yeah, how do, we, how do we not adhere to unbiblical gender norms but also not encourage cross-sex presentation? It's tricky because one person might be presenting in a cross-sex way for one reason and another for another reason. And in the Bible, the reason why what you're doing something matters. Yes, gender expressions are way more fluid. Forget the 50s, 60s, 70s, than the early 2000s. I mean, this, this list, 90% of these things weren't available in 2000. But that's the world we live in. Like, that's what we're dealing with. 
And God's not afraid of it. God wasn't caught off guard by this moment. And, and the gender expressions available in the 50s were wildly different than they were in the year 1200 in the Middle East somewhere. I mean, what if we are going through a change? Um, yeah, so let me. I, I, think, I think the person who looks at the child growing up now and says, I'm so sad you're growing up in this moment in time. It must be so hard. I think we should rebuke that person. I think that's faithless and hopeless. I, I, we are not without hope. This is not a terrible time. It's just a different time. And every time we face challenging ways to learn how to be faithful all over again. I don't know if this is the right analogy. Can I do this? Oh, dear. When my grandfather grew up in rural Louisiana in the 40s, Think about all those pastors who were trying to deal with guys in rural Louisiana joining the KKK. Like, it was an option, right? And it was terrible, right? And it was harming people. Now, what do you think the best pastor did? The pastor who was the most effective at helping people in his community out of that. Do you think he was the one that, that prophetically scourged against it? Or do you think he was the one who entered into the lives of those young men and walked with them and helped them see? See, it, all analogies fail, and already I feel creeped out having even used that and, and, and know that there's something utterly terrible about that. But what I'm getting at is in every moment in time, you have to walk with people in the options being made available to them, and you can always say, we didn't have to deal with that at this other point in time. But, that, that it's, but there's never a point in time where you don't have to deal with stuff. So yeah, there's a whole lot more gender expressions available now, but that's just reality. That's just what we're dealing with. And so how do we come alongside our children and say, oh, maybe you're gender fluid. Well, let's figure out what it would look like to walk faithful to God with that as, as a part of the way you see yourself and you manifest yourself in this world. And let's find the the toxic stuff in there and let's call it for what it is and let's also find the ways that you're being creative that stereo, you know, and to the other child who just does not fit into the stereotypes. So, is that? Okay. Thank you. Um, I think this is speaking specifically about our church, Church of the Incarnation. Will the church start safe groups or mentoring relationships for those struggling with sexuality, non-gender conformity, sexual identity? So my plan for our church is after this series in mid-January to take the leadership of the church to work with an outside organization who can lead our leadership to think together about these issues, to get out of the one dude talking into the leadership um, engaging with this through a series of Bible studies and discussions. We'll come out of that and um, 
we're going to gather a group in our church to look through all of our policies and procedures. Remember, there's doctrine, there's procedures, and there's posture. So all of the procedures, who can be members, who can come to the table, who can read scripture, who can be baptized, who cannot be baptized. And the, the driving issue is going to be, are we treating heterosexual sin in the same way we're treating all other sins? And how do we deal with all of it? So there's going to be the right group of people who have the right stakes in this issue, who form a part of a committee that help us think through all the ways our church works and interacts and receives people. I also um, hope uh, to partner with some LGBTQ people in our church who are committed to the Christian sexual ethic to start a ministry for the LGBTQ community that can be a safe space. Um, some plans are foot to do that. Um, and then later in the spring, we hope those leaders who have had some training and we've worked through some of the policy to lead all the small groups of the church through a basic Bible study where we can all as in our small groups begin to think through and engage with this material in, in a more discussive way and so forth. So is that? Yeah, okay. Thank you. All right, I think Spencer and Dylan, if y'all will come up, Dylan has the uh, mic. And so if you two will come and join me on stage, we will now do some questions that... Uh, Hey. Okay, do y'all have? Okay, this one's for Dylan and Spencer both. Um, did the social and cultural expectations for masculinity and femininity add significantly to your struggle? Add significantly to what? To your struggle. Um, I would say yes, um, because where I grew up, I kind of mentioned this last week that I didn't jive with the predominantly masculine things that a lot of my peers were doing. So that was like playing sports, especially football. Um, hunting, fishing, any of those things, talking about those things. Um, and then like even when I got older, talking about like business um, and like starting businesses and money management stuff. And I was like, I just, Never felt like I fit in with those things or valued those things to the same extent. So um, you did two degrees in creative writing. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's been definitely a journey for me to find, like, how I define my own masculinity. Because it is, I feel like, very countercultural. Um, so that's definitely been a struggle and a journey. Okay. <laughs> Okay, this is for Spencer and Dylan, and it has two different parts. So both of you described in your stories um, how you felt different growing up. Could you expound a little bit on what felt different? You guys mentioned, you know, being around girls or guys, maybe not feeling like you fit in, um, but maybe if you could expound on that a little bit. And then when you were in those times, what did others do that were particularly helpful or harmful? Do you wanna, do you wanna start? Okay. So I think something, I think it's really important to keep in mind, children don't know what sex is unless they've been taught 
or seen or they've seen something or they've heard something or whatever. So I felt different in the sense that I was attracted to girls and boys, but I didn't know that I was attracted to girls. I don't really know how to explain it other than that without being explicit, and I'm not going to do that. Um, but I didn't have any words, I guess. I just felt drawn to women, um, drawn to girls, um, as well as boys. And I think that something that a good example maybe to kind of get you guys to understand how I felt is in middle school, I remember whenever I would be in the locker rooms and we would change for gym class, I would feel like I had to keep my eyes glued on the ground or directly in front of me. And I felt like I couldn't look at anyone or talk to anyone because I was scared that someone would be like, oh, you're looking at me, you're being a pervert. So that was something that I kind of struggled with. Um, and I think that's kind of like how I felt different um, moving out of my childhood. Um, very similar experience for me to um, even like the locker room situations. Um, and what was the second part of that question too? When you were in those times, things that were particularly helpful or hurtful that people did? Um, something that was actually hurtful was people calling me gay as like a slur. Um, and even though that ended up being true, um, they were still saying it as like an insulting thing and it was always used as an insult. Um, so that hurt me because like identifying as that, even if I had never called myself gay, made it feel like uh, there was like something wrong with me or dirty or messed up. So that was hurtful. Um, helpful? Um, nothing particularly comes to mind. And that <laughs> sounds awful, but um, I think just having conversations that like where people try to understand me and kind of defy the stereotypes and ways that gay has been used as like a, a slur helped me realize that, you know, it wasn't a slur and that I'm not a bad or dirty or awful person because of that. So, Uh, this is a question for both Spencer and Dylan, and I think you could give different answers for this, but uh, uh, what are the ways that either we as a church or we as individuals in this church uh, can constructively engage with the LGBTQ community in Harrisonburg that's outside of the church? That's, that's a good a big one question. too. Yeah. Um, just don't be scared of those people. Um, talk to them and talk to them like you would any other person. Um, you don't have to like go to a pride parade or anything like that to do that either. Um, so yeah, that's, and just, I've said this before and I'll say it a thousand times, like talk to them but ask questions to understand them 
and not to argue with them or try and change them um, because that ends up being more heart hurtful than good so yeah I think everything that Dylan said you know just be engaging have conversations um, something kind of funny that my dad's friend says is watch if you're straight watch Queer Eye until you don't get annoyed <laughs> Okay, so like, just expose yourselves. Listen to some Nicki Minaj. I don't know, it's not that hard. Um, no, but on a serious note, just be understanding, try to be kind. Um, try to think about questions that you could ask in ways that aren't going to feel um, like the person is under a microscope or questions that would make someone feel uncomfortable. Try to just get to know the person rather than their sexuality, and I think that will teach you more than anything. Mm -hmm. um, I have two here. Okay, Dylan and Spencer, um, how did your friendships change as a result of coming out? How did your friends react? And did you make new friends once you entered into the LGBTQ community publicly? Um, most of my friends that I told in public school were pretty chill about it. I didn't really have any negative reactions. I also don't think I had any negative reactions from any of my close friends. Um, I do have a lot of friends in the church that I have never directly told that I'm gay, um, that I'm queer, so I think that we'll cross that bridge when we get there. I don't anticipate that anyone would be outright hateful or anything like that. Um, I do think that a lot of times something that I struggle with is as someone who is attracted to men and women and non-binary people, a lot of times people will view me as an entirely sexual being and they'll be like, oh, you're attracted to women? Does that mean you have a crush on me? And I'm like, mm, no, that's not how it works. So I kind of struggle with that, but I think other than that, people have been really nice. Yeah, um, I would say like from very close friends, I've had very positive responses. Um, but I think what helped with that is that they knew me first before I came out and they didn't like treat me any differently. Um, and they would ask clarifying questions or they would like, you know, anything like that. And I was fine to answer those. Um, but for the most part, it's pretty positive. For me, it's more like acquaintances that end up being more like rude or hurtful. Um, and I think that's simply because they don't have the prior relationship. Um, so I do sometimes get people who are like, especially if I come out to a man and they're like, and they get kind of distant. You can see them like close off because they're like, uh-oh, I'm a man. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think, yeah. I have something to add. I think that also a lot of times someone will come across as rude to me or homophobic, but it's genuinely not that. It's just that the person has not been educated in the ways that they should be, and that's 
I'm going to be very careful how I say this. That's not always entirely their fault. I think that a lot of people have been indoctrinated in America to have very hateful beliefs. And this is speaking outside of the church. And so I think that we need to be gracious and understanding when it comes to people who are asking us questions and who are trying to understand. Because a lot of times things can come across in ways that they're not meant to be. So that's something that I try to think about when people are asking me questions. Um, and I think that that helps me think about it in a more positive light. Thank you. Can I ask a quick follow-up question? Because this is kind of related. Um, have you had a friend who kind of has that, I guess is it side X, where they just kind of think, well, if you just prayed, this would be fixed or this would go away. How would you respond? Have you had a friend like that? And how would you respond to someone with that mindset? Um, I don't have, I don't think I've had any friends who've done that. If someone did do that, I would point out the fact that um, I did that for a really long time and it didn't work. <laughs> so um, I don't think that I would be like super hurt by it. I would try and use that as like a teachable moment. Like, hey, look, I was there, you know, a couple of years ago, but that didn't work. So let's, I don't know, like find a different way to talk about this. I've only, I've never had any friends like that. I think that's something that I kind of try to feel out when I'm becoming <laughs> friends with someone. Um, so I've never had a friend like that, but I did, at youth group one time, I did have a conversation with a person. This was probably when I was like 15 or 16 about this, and this person did not know that I was gay. And I kind of just told them that they were wrong but I really tried to do it in a way that I felt like reserved them dignity and value. And so that's just kind of how I responded. But I just was like, no, I mean, I think God created everyone equally. I think everyone was created with intention and with purpose. And so that's just kind of how I answer that. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all very much. So, couple of things, gender, uh, gender, Dylan, <laughs> Spencer, and Janelle, uh, my wife, Spencer's mother, and I will all be here uh, until close to 6.30, and then we're going to go to the Golden Pony, and you're welcome to bring your own form of payment and join us there. We had a, a most lovely time, just a wonderful time last week. Um, having a great conversation. We've reserved some tables and all, so you're welcome to join us. We'll head over there around 6.30, by 6.45. That's one invitation. And Dylan and Spencer have agreed to, to, to have those kind of conversations with you. I want to talk to you about some resources. Okay. Let's see. The... I think the, the, the three best books written on the trans conversation, one, this is embodied by Preston Sprinkle, Transgender Identities, the Church, and What the Bible Has to Say. It is full of love and compassion. Um, and he, he uh, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Mark Yarhouse and Julius Sadusky, 
emerging gender identities, understanding the diverse experiences of today's youth. So the stuff I was saying where it seems that there's three different groups within the trans world right now. So this was um, their psychologist. He is, he has a chair in psychology at Wheaton and he leads the Sexual and Gender Identity Institute. I cannot recommend this book enough. It's them listening to, to youth, young people, and trying to help us understand what is going on. And also it's full of lots of um, help, advice from therapists who are deeply committed Christians on how if you're a parent or a loved one, how to walk with people through this. It, they're not afraid to critique some of the um, methodologies that are being recommended by the American Pediatric Association, for example, but they're also very serious uh, psychologists and practitioners themselves. Mark Yarhouse wrote a book several years ago by himself called Understanding Gender Dysphoria, Navigating Transgender Issues in a Changing Culture, published um, by IVP. It's so helpful, it's very good. Okay, if you're the kind of person who likes to know all the terrible stuff going on in our world and you like um, talk show anger, this book will just be like your friend. You can pet it, um, but it is a, it's a very serious account of the kind of ideological war going on in our culture around this issue. I do not think that Helen Joyce is writing from a Christian perspective, but anyway, there's that. All right, um, one more book, also from a conservative standpoint, like these first three are, is Andrew Walker, God and the Transgender Debate. What does the Bible actually say about gender identity? I think this is a really helpful book. Okay, if, and then one other from that perspective, how the gospel is good news for our physical selves, what God has to say about our body. These are all accessible and good books. Um, on the other side, from the affirming side, the, these are the two best books I know of that are arguing from scripture in an affirming way. So if you want to engage with the very best arguments coming out, and both, I don't know these two authors, but I know people who know them, who are deeply impressed with their Christianity, their devotion to God, their intellect, their rigor, um, and disagree with them, okay? So these are the two best arguments I know on the affirming side. Sex Difference in Christian Theology by Megan K. DeFranza. Very serious book, um, get your dictionary. It's a heavy piece of theology on a much lower shelf, but, but a, a, um, still a good book, Transforming the Bible and the Lives of Transgender Christians. Okay, a couple of more things and then I'll be done. If you or somebody you love is, if, if, you, if somebody in your family or somebody you love is a part of the LGBTQ uh, community, I've recommended these before, but I'm gonna keep recommending them. They are so good. It's the same book, the little version and the big version, the expanded version and the essential edition. And it's like pictures, okay? You don't have to read a lot. It's um, uh, helping build a sustainable support network for your trans child. Um, 
six developmental stages, how teens come out. This is so helpful. These books have been so helpful for Janelle and I when Spencer came out for us to do this crash course in oh, what was she going through for all these years in our house that we didn't know. And these books are just excellent. And I think that's that. Um, I'll set these books out here like I've done in the past. I will give you, anybody who wants my notes, you can have them or we're going to donate them to recycling. So good to see you. I'll pray and we'll be done. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the bread of life, the light of the world. Help us to um, rest in you. In Christ's name, amen.